Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by Ronnie Fraser. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming on. So Ronnie, tell us, who are you and what do you do? Well, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Ronnie Fraser, and uh, I'm an award-winning narcissistic abuse recovery coach which means I work with women, uh, not exclusively, but mainly with women who have uh, come out of abusive relationships and as a consequence suffer from complex post-traumatic stress and other mental health challenges like anxiety, depression, flashbacks. And uh, yes, I've developed a program specifically designed for that uh, purpose. Just give us a definition then. So narcissistic, so you mentioned the anxiety, PTSD, et cetera. Mm -hmm. what, what all is covered within the narcissistic label? Um, when you say narcissistic label, as in like what kind of abuse it is? Or yeah, well, yeah. So mean? just so to help people understand, you know, the... the what narcissistic, what it is that I do. Yes, correct. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, narcissistic abuse is actually one of the most common but least acknowledged forms of abuse. Um, in a nutshell, it's emotional and psychological abuse, which makes it uh, invisible, which is a big challenge. And without a fail, it has severe life-altering impact on the survivor. And uh, usually it's, you know, sometimes mentioned as a byproduct of physical abuse, of sexual abuse, which are kind of like the accepted forms of abuse. Uh, in quotation marks, <laughs> accepted forms of abuse, acknowledged forms of abuse is probably a better word, um, but it's very rarely looked at in its own right, uh, but it's actually very common. And as I said, it has a severe impact on the survivor's uh, life. Cool, that's, that's gonna be interesting. I'm looking forward to this and, and I'm sure there's, there's, a, there's a story associated to it too. So, so before we get into it, tell me what does fire in the belly mean to you? Fire in the belly is what gets me up in the morning, really. <laughs> and um, I mean, probably pretty much everyone says passion, but that's what, you know, gives you the fire in the, in the belly, the mission that you are on. Um, it's what, you know, motivates you to move forward and to, you know, challenge things, to push through um, potential uh you know, negative feedback, if mm -hmm. there is such thing, but, you know, especially when you do a lot of social media work that can be quite easily be a backlash kind of thing. It's, um, it's basically for me, what gives me the, uh, the power, if you will, to withstand anything that comes my way, but driving my mission forward. Cool. I like that. Would you say is that mixed in with resilience as well? Or would you say that's separate? uh no it goes together you know your determination motivation resilience and uh the fire is what keeps it going 
Mm. Like I can feel it just talking about it. <laughs> That's great. I love that. It's interesting. Are you are you a kinesthetic person? Do you do you sort of are your senses predominantly in feeling? Um, I think by now it's fairly uh, balanced, but uh, by nature probably yes. Even though there was a long period of time where I had basically shut that off completely. But uh, with all the healing work that I've done on myself and, and the work I do, uh, it has a lot, of, lot to do with, with emotions and, you know, sensing what's going on in your body because your body holds all the answers, right? So, um, yeah, I think I'm pretty much in tune by now. <laughs> Perfect. I look forward to this. So, Bonnie, take us right back then. Where are you from originally? And talk to us about your family and your upbringing. Uh, yeah, so I'm from Germany, as you can hear by my accent. Not. <laughs> I was born in Germany, um, and then I moved. I moved uh, to the UK 15 years ago, and I grew up um, in a small Bavarian town called Coburg. Um, UK people tend to know the name because Prince Albert. You know, the who married Queen Victoria was from Coburg. So that's our little claim to fame, you know. <laughs> um, but it was pretty much uh, kind of like the end of the world because it was right at the border to former East Germany. So when I grew up, you literally couldn't go any further. That was like where it stopped. Um, and yeah, I don't think I've ever felt like I belonged into like a small Bavarian town village kind of environment you know and from a very early age I felt drawn to uh, the UK and I'm actually not quite sure if there's maybe a past life thing going on there or something because I could always speak English as well it was you know I never actively learned it so I was fluent in English before I even spent some time uh, in England and uh, yeah but I grew up there um, with my parents so my dad, they're retired now. So my dad uh, was like sales director, my mom, uh, housewife. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just did like my usual, what you're supposed to be doing, you know, you finish school and I had my first long-term relationship and didn't get married because I kind of ran away before that. <laughs> before it happened um, but you know we have a house and all those kind of things my mom always says I did everything backwards because <laughs> I started with like all the serious you know like family kind of stuff very early on and then when I was 21 I was like nah it, this is really my life I don't think that can be it and I, I kind of left um, so yeah, did everything as I was supposed to. Always had a bit of a rebel streak in me, you know, like the colored hair and the tattoos and when it wasn't that normal. And it was always like, my dad was very strict, so it was always a bit like pushing the buttons as much as I could, you know. <laughs> and, um, yeah, as I said, first long-term relationship when I was 16 to 21. Um which we probably come back to when we when we talk uh, what happened and consequently going forward. And uh, when that broke up, the first thing I did was I went to London 
and uh, oh yeah, maybe I should mention that when I was 14, I did like a school exchange and uh, I wanted to go to London and my dad was like, absolutely not. You're 14 years old. There's no way you're going to London on your own. So uh, I went to Jersey <laughs> instead. <laughs> and uh, for the last two days, we're in London. And that's actually when I made a decision that when I grow up, I will live in London. And so I came home when I was 14 and I said, when I grow up, I'm going to live in London. And my parents were like, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. I mean, who actually does it, right? And uh, so then when that relationship broke up, the first thing I did was I went to London. And uh, yeah, fell in love with London. I had been in love with London since I was 14 and uh, basically made a decision, no, I'm actually going to move now. Um, found myself an internship and you know um, when I want something I always put my everything into it to make it happen so back home I was working and uh, I basically took some time off to go on a holiday but what I was actually doing was I went to London to work you know on this internship and uh, so when I came back from that, I said, I'm going to move to London. And my dad just said, yeah, you can, you know, we're not going to be in your way, but don't rush it and, you know, give it some time and sort out all your loose ends and all of that kind of stuff. So give it a year and then you're good to go. And I said, all right. So I gave it a year and uh, then I actually moved to London and um yeah, so I'm I'm a certified chartered accountant uh, originally. So I was quite lucky when I moved to London because my very first job was in the head office um, of a German supermarket, which was really uh, fortunate for me because having I hadn't gone to university at that time, I did that later, and but they acknowledged my qualification because they knew what the German qualification meant. So I had a really uh, good start when I moved. To the UK and um, so that was basically how it all started out and while I was in London I met a lot of Australians a lot of Kiwis a lot of travelers and I'm like oh wow this is really amazing because in Germany back then it wasn't a thing you know you wouldn't just take time off after school and go traveling for a year or something I think now it's quite normal but back then it wasn't and uh, so I thought, well, if they can, I can, right? And uh, so I quit my job and then I went traveling to Australia for three months, which was a big shock for my parents. I mean, nowadays they're used to all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I you have, you've, through, you've trained them. <laughs> I put them through a pretty hard school. Um, yeah, I went backpacking and, you know, um, discovered my love for travel and uh, just meeting different people, different cultures, exploring those things. And um, you must have been what about so, 20, 22, something like that? Have I got the yeah, when I moved to London, I was 25, I think. How old am I now? <laughs> no, 23. That made myself older than I was. <laughs> what, what, what age are you, if you don't mind me asking? 38. 38, cool. So, you, well, take us right back. I mean, are, are you an only child? Uh, no, I have a brother. Mm -hmm. Cool. And uh, I have a sister as well, but she didn't grow up with us. Uh, I was adopted. So okay. I grew up with uh, my brother, who was also a foster child. 
And then my sister, she found me when I was like 18 or something. Um, but I didn't grow up with her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me then, I mean, what was, what would we have seen as a seven-year-old child? You know, what sort of a child were you? Uh, what sort of child was I? Uh, a tomboy. I kind of grew up in a motorbike garage. <laughs> and um, what sort of child? I always knew what I wanted and how to get it, I guess. And uh, very ambitious, always. Uh, always top of the class, kind of... Uh, overachiever if you will mm-hmm. uh, i was sick a lot when i was a child I spent a lot of time in hospital and uh was quite creative as well like i, I love to paint and what sort of painting out of interest uh, it was just children's doodles kind of stuff but i sold them you know from a from an early age i would like walk around when there was like an event and would just sell my pictures so I always had pocket money. <laughs> like that creativity got lost when I became an accountant. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, that's funny. I haven't thought about that in like years. <laughs> Can I ask what age you were when you were adopted? Uh, just uh, straight out of hospital, right after birth. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you were... Painting, I like that. So you're always creating, achieving, and, and you obviously have, you were quite a, a busy child, it seems. Uh, I think so. Yeah, I always kept myself busy. Uh, always had, you know, people around me, friends around me. Um, yeah. That's cool. I think I was a pretty happy child, I think. Like so I always I- say, I always say, actually, my parents, it's, it was me winning the lottery. Really, that's how, how it feels, you know? Yeah. Oh, well. So how was school for you? School was great. I loved it. I was very good at school, and um, I always was the, the cool kid, if you will, you know? Um, so I would push the, the boundaries but still perform well, you know? So they couldn't really say anything uh, because I didn't do anything except for coloring my hair and you know I remember when my mom bought me my first Metallica t-shirt I was 10 and I went to school with it and I got into trouble for that <laughs> because I was wearing this t-shirt with skulls so it's this little girl right <laughs> and all of a sudden she rocks up with a with Metallica t-shirt um, but I guess that's always been like a pattern throughout my life. You know, once you are really good at what you do and then confident in what you do, the way you look doesn't really matter anymore, you know? And, uh, yeah. What would you have made of yourself if you were to meet a 10-year-old with a Metallica T-shirt now? What would your thoughts be? What my thoughts would be now if I saw a 10-year-old with a Metallica T-shirt? Oh, that's pretty badass. Good cool. parenting. <laughs> what was it? What was it about Metallica that took your fancy? Do you know? I don't know. It was just the first love of my life, I think. Well, and the the, the had you the hair color as well to go with. Uh, yeah, I think I started dyeing my hair when I was fourteen. And my mom's a hairdresser, 
okay. and before she became a house housewife. So, mm. yeah, my dad didn't like it very much, but then he got used to it eventually. So a lot of things happened at 14. You're getting your hair dyed, you're wearing your Metallica t-shirts, you're going off on school exchanges. So Yeah, 14- the Metallica stuff happened with ten, when I was 10. But yeah, cool. 14 was quite significant, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in school, so everything was going well in school. You were studying away outside of school. What were, what were you up to? Um, but I did a lot of sports until probably I was about 15 or 16. And then I had my first relationship. And that was quite demanding. Uh, he was quite demanding, controlling and... Uh, so basically my first relationship was already a severely abusive relationship but it wasn't recognized as one you know you just happened to have a really jealous boyfriend you know it was just brushed off that way so those five years from 16 to uh, 21 uh, they were quite controlled um, where I didn't really have that much freedom to do whatever it is that I wanted to do Uh how did you guys meet then how do we meet? Well, it's a small place I come from. Were you we in school time. together or was it? No, no, he, he was uh, quite a bit older, like six years older. Um, we were probably introduced through mutual friends or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. That's cool. I mean, it's a very, um, it's, it's a young age to have serious relationships you know in a five-year relationship is quite substantial too yeah yeah how did you find that just out of interest is you know looking back at it now what to have this long relationship Mm. but early on for me it was just normal i thought it's what would be expected and i don't know if it's like a traditional thing like a german thing or how it was back then because everybody was you know you most people were with their high school sweethearts. Some of them still are today, you know. So it was kind of like a normal thing, really. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it um, until I changed my mind about it, <laughs> right? Uh, it was just very like, – I was pretty – I don't know what the right word is. Probably cool in quotation marks, you know, I – I was riding a motorbike, I had colored hair, I had my first tattoo when I was 14, and uh, all of those things then all of a sudden, you know, disappeared because, you know, as a woman, you're not supposed to do those things, and you're 16 years old, you don't necessarily know how things should be, right? And... um, so there, there were a lot of things that I was then told. And if you get told things over and over again in a, in a particular way, it goes right in, you know. So um, that's how I ended up being a, a, an accountant. In, in Germany, I actually trained to be a tax accountant. And by nature, I was, you know, a creative person. I would uh, work for the radio station. I would uh, write for all the local newspapers. I would do interviews and concert reviews and from a very early age, like when I was 14 or something. And uh, my dad would always very rock and roll, you know, drive me to the shows and wait so I can do my interviews <laughs> with the, with the uh, bands. And then, you know, he would drive me back home because 
wasn't much rock and roll when you're like 14, 15. Um, but I loved it, you know, and uh, but that then kind of uh, was not an option anymore. And I remember I went to a, uh, a gig to do an interview with a band and it was like some really not important band and uh, they just happened to score a role in the uh, like national soap opera you know so they became a little bit famous and uh, I took my then boyfriend to prove to him that all I was doing was actually asking questions sit down write it up and make really good money with it you know and then so I took him as my photographer and we walked in backstage and the singer of that band whistled at me like I can't whistle so but you know that whistle you know when when like a guy a wolf whistle they call it I think yeah like when a guy whistles at a girl and then that's basically when my whole career in uh you know music journalism if you want to call it went because uh he was just too jealous and obviously me trying to make a point didn't quite work out and uh so i became a tax accountant and university wasn't an option because the the man is the breadwinner you know so if i had gone to university that means eventually i would have had a better uh, job better money and that was not acceptable so i basically just applied for any kind of job that i could find in in the you know close proximity and um the accountant job was actually the only one where i didn't have to do a test <laughs> that's why i got it. it was really bizarre i failed all those tests <laughs> but um yeah so i knew nothing about accounting you know and i had no interest in it but it was the only option at the time and uh, so i just went with it and i mean looking back now it served me really well you know um but i still don't like numbers I'm very good at it and they are logical, they make sense, but definitely no fire in the belly for that one. <laughs> oh, well, I'm just curious. I mean, you were saying university wasn't an option. Was that because of your partner or something yeah. else? No, because, because of the, the partner I had at the time. So it was literally just because of the whole concept of the man being the breadwinner and um, me not, you know, it not being acceptable to me uh, for me to have like a better paid job and that kind of thing interesting for someone of such a strong character to actually adhere to the someone else's beliefs yeah it's really interesting especially looking back now and mm -hmm. knowing what i know now um because uh it, of, the, of course it wasn't the only relationship like that you know, it gets worse and worse and worse until it completely knocks you off your feet and then either you uh, get out of it or you don't, you know. And uh, looking back now, it's uh, it's unbelievable, really, because if you are such a strong character, you have such a strong personality, I was always very uh, confident in who I was. But throughout my whole life, all my relationships, pretty much all of them, uh, had that same pattern where you know once a relationship or love would get involved i would just uh you know disregard anything that i was and um i mean we will be talking more about that as well i'm sure uh but it's very interesting to look back now and uh 
the thing is that patterns like that usually, you know, will go with us wherever we go, no matter how old we are. You know, when you're 16, you don't know any better, but then you have this conditioning, which means you are 30 and you're still doing exactly the same shit, you know, Un until you change it, obviously. And uh, yeah. But back then I didn't know, you know, I, for me, it was like, I just got to the point eventually where it was like, um, I remember I was standing on the balcony smoking, um, one of my five cigarettes a day that I was allowed. <laughs> it, it sounds ridiculous now, you know, but when you are in it, there's almost no way of getting out. And I can remember I was 21 and, uh, he actually had made the decision that we were getting married and he had told my parents and I remember like going like, we are? You know, it was just a decision that was made. I wasn't asked or anything. And, you know, my mom, of course, she's like, oh, yeah, wedding, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, what is going on here? And um, at that point, I had no free movement at all. My, uh, the only time I was allowed to leave the house was uh, going to work. And then I had 25 minutes to make it home. If I wasn't home within, you know, 30 minutes, I would be in trouble. Uh, no friends, completely isolated. I saw my family maybe once a month. Uh, he was controlling my phone and my money and, and basically everything, you know. And I remember standing on their balcony and having one of my five cigarettes a day. And I'm like, you're 21 years old. Like I was basically a housewife, you know. I would cook every day, a Sunday roast every Sunday, uh, baking a cake every Sunday. And I'm like, that can't be it. I mean, I'm quite smart, you know, and it's just like either if I stay, I might as well kill myself or I leave. And obviously I didn't want to die. So I'm like, I have to find a way out, but I didn't know how. And there was that one time when he was at work, he actually forgot to lock the door. And I don't know why I tried the door handle when I walked past, but I tried the door handle and the door was unlocked. And uh, I just put everything I had, I could fit in my car. It was like a tiny, like Peugeot, you know, 106 tiny car with my little budgie on the passenger seat. <laughs> and I ran, you know, and I went home to, to my parents. And, uh, and then, you know, I just... You know, you just get on with life. And that's, you know, where trauma then actually just gets shoved down, shoved down, shoved down until eventually it comes back up. But, um, you know, I just did what I needed to do. And from then on, I would concentrate on work and building a career and creating a life for myself where I basically would prove everyone meaning me really, right? <laughs> that I wouldn't need anyone, meaning a man, to like, for anything, being happy, right? So that then kind of became my mission where, you know, I just wouldn't put myself into the same kind of situation anymore. So everything was then just about building this, this life for me. And uh, yeah, and I thought I had completely dealt with all of it and, you know, it's just a breakup, but uh, obviously later on I found out that it wasn't just a breakup. It wasn't just a normal relationship. He wasn't just, you know, a difficult person. I and mean, he was actually uh, highly abusive. 
I mean, it's not normal to to have to check and wonder if the door is locked or not. I mean, is that just, and can I ask? And I mean, by all means. But is I mean, what you say there would be, you know, there'd be consequences or things like that. I mean, what what does that mean? Well, he wasn't physically violent, but uh, he would be, um, you know, emotionally and psychologically abusive. Which back then, again, I didn't even know what that was. Hmm. Um, he would be sexually abusive, and yeah, it was just you know when when your identity just completely gets eroded and. Uh, the whole purpose of it is that you just don't feel secure in yourself at all, you know? So, which means if you have no confidence, if you think that you're worth nothing, if you think that without him, you won't survive, uh, it's, you, you'll stay, right? Because you're afraid. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, what, what value was that serving you and vice versa for your partner at the time? What was it serving them? What was it serving me? I, for me back then, it was, I think, complying with what you think you should be doing, what's expected, and not knowing any better. But then I guess I didn't have that excuse when I was 30, and I had the same thing. But <laughs> uh, back then, that's that's uh, what it was. And um, there is that thing about love when we have faulty programming, you know, that we uh it's, it's literally an addiction and because he was nice at one point right so it's not like it started out with him being like that he was really nice until the mask comes off that's how the whole spiel starts right but at that point you're already hooked and then there are so many things when it's about love you know like not feeling good enough you know um wanting somebody to love you um wanting somebody to treat you nice and every now and then they do right it's not like they always treat you badly so it's kind of this dynamic and what did it give him it gave him control it gave him power it gave him money and it, there's also an energy exchange happening between abuser and uh, victim you know until you break that cycle and you actually change what made it possible in the first place like why didn't you just walk away uh, for example why did you stay for five years you know but there there is a lot of it's quite complex because there are a lot of stuff happening in the brain you know like fight flight and freeze where you actually you know if you freeze you cannot or you're protecting yourself because you're constantly in in self-protection mode you're scared of the consequences, what happens when I leave. And when once I left, horrendous things were happening. I wouldn't leave the house without a, a pepper spray. You know, when I left work, people would escort me to my car because, you know, people got worried that he or his uh, family members would wait for me somewhere. And then uh, his dad called my boss and told my boss that I that he knew I don't even know how he got through to her, but he did. That I had, uh, that he knows that I have intentions to hook up with her husband, and which could have cost me my job, right? And I was really lucky at that time because um, 
my boss, she actually had an experience like that. So when I then sat in her office and I was crying and I was so embarrassed and scared and everything, she could actually relate because it had happened to her in, you know, a different kind of way. So it didn't cost me my job, but it could have. You know, so there are a lot of things which make you stay in situations like that. I actually haven't talked about this relationship in forever. So because it, it's not actually relevant anymore at this point, mm. because there were other things that happen, happen, happen. And then once you get to the point where you take responsibility for yourself and then you look back, um, you see the patterns, but it's all about the learnings rather than the actual, you know, what happened and who was the good guy, who was the bad guy, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't talked about this in probably ever like this, actually. Mm. Just out of curiosity, what was your parents' view on this and how much were they or were they not aware of? Uh, I don't think they were aware of what was actually happening. And uh, I mean, sometimes you also protect your parents because, you know, um, my mom, she's a very caring uh, person, highly uh, empath, you know, and uh, you you want to protect your parents too. So you're quite selective with what you say and what you don't say. And then what also happens is you don't even know what to say because you don't know what's going on. You know, something is really wrong here, but who's going to believe you, you know, because on the outside, those guys are, you know, really likable. They're very charming. You know, nobody would ever think that they would be capable of doing anything like that, you know? And um, so they knew that he was very jealous. And I remember my mom always telling, uh, you know, when, when she would talk about him mentioning that he's really jealous um, and that he's a bit controlling. So they were aware of that. They obviously also noticed that my, my personality was changing. And, but because he would remove me from my family, they would only get to see me like once a month or so, you know? And uh, then I'm obviously there, you know, holding it all together to pretend. And uh, so I think, uh, yeah, I still haven't told them the whole magnitude of what, what happened back then because, you know, can't change it. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a tough, but it's interesting you know, I suppose, I mean, I, I've never experienced such a thing, you know, and I'd be curious, would you have seen anything from the outside or was it, you know, was it perfectly covered by yourself and your partner at the time? No, it was perfectly covered, mm. you know. I mean, and then because I didn't have any exposure to people around me, you know, I didn't have any friends anymore. Um and there was one person who was uh, who had my phone number because we went to school together because in germany you, you do training you know you go to the office for three days a week and you go to school for two days a week like apprenticeship thing and we would go to school together um but because he was controlling the you know my phone records and everything um there wasn't really anybody who would have been able to judge either and, you know, his whole family was functioning in, the, in a similar way. So for them, it was just perfectly normal behavior. Well, no, it's, I'm just, you know, obviously if there's anyone out there with some similar circumstance, you know, hopefully this just helps to 
to trigger what is what's normal and what's normal not normal you know yeah it's it's very it's very um tricky sometimes because oftentimes people don't realize that they are being abused because it's all they know or you know because it has become acceptable and then when something is normal you don't question it anymore you know but if you're not allowed to wear what you want to wear if you're not allowed to uh, dye your hair for example if your phone records are being controlled um, at one point I overheard him telling his brother-in-law that he was looking into bugging my phone so that's like what 20 years ago right <laughs> and uh, you know things like that are not normal when you're isolated from your friends when you're not allowed to uh, socially interact with anybody uh, when your your movement is restricted and in general if somebody makes you feel shit about yourself that's abusive you know they don't have to hit you if they um you know break down who you are and make you feel really horrible about who you are and worthless and unlovable and all those things that's abuse you know it's not just a bad temper or uh you know he had a bad day or whatever I mean, obviously, there was there was some good times or some glimmers of hope, which was enough to stop until you you know you hit you know sort of twenty one and getting to the point where you enough you say enough is enough, you know. But yeah. you know, I mean, that whole dynamic of abusive relationships, which I think people don't realize, is it's literally like a mask coming on and off. And you have fallen in love with a really amazing person, but then this mask comes off and all you want is that person back because you fell in love with that person. You know that that person exists, but actually they don't, you know, it was all a show. So then, especially in the beginning, when you still have like a bit of self-respect, a bit of strength left and you go like, no, I'm not doing this, you know, I'm out of here. Then what happens? The mask comes back on, you know, and you're like, oh, there he is. And then that starts all over again until the mask comes back off. And that's that whole whole dynamic. And because your brain cannot comprehend what's actually happening here, you hold on to this illusion of him being a good guy. And yes, he's troubled. You know, they oftentimes have like difficult childhoods and they always have some kind of sob story and we care. So we're like, oh, he's a really nice guy, you know, but uh those bad things have happened to him so i will make sure he knows he's loved and i sacrifice myself which is faulty programming on our part right um, it was interesting because you, you mentioned your mother being you know very much an empath and mm -hmm. is that a trait that you you sort of you would have picked up as well and, and had probably i get i mean if you think about empath and narcissist, it's it's uh, it's basically the the two different sides of the same coin. It's just different strategies how we decided as children how to cope and how to survive. So one strategy is to you know become uh, highly uh, engaged and sacrificing yourself because you want to want the approval you want to belong you want to be loved and it's the most basic human design right we all have that 
Mm. And then one goes that way, which is obviously an extreme because you're completely sacrificing yourself for the sake of being loved. And then the other strategy is, oh, I have no emotions whatsoever. And, uh, you know, I just don't do the whole love thing and I have no empathy. And, uh, you know, they become then those, uh, you know, narcissists are really full of themselves and the whole world evolves around them, but they still have that underlying need for approval like we all do for love, you know, and the way they get it. So the empath sacrifices themselves and what the narcissist does, he uh, gets disapproval by making others feel inferior. But at the end of the day, it's two sides of the same coin, really, and then different strategies. So I guess I could have, you know, gone either way, <laughs> but uh, I went, I went the, the kind way, if you will. It's it's yeah it's amazing as you say that it's it doesn't have to be violence it doesn't have to leave a mark physical mark you know and this is the almost the amazing thing you know the 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 power of words both positive and negative yeah I mean some people uh, some of those abusers they're literally natural hypnotists you know without being aware of it but then I've also met some people that actually intentionally train to even get better at the manipulation and uh you know manipulating women and stuff their books written about it and all that it's like it's insane um but yeah language is very powerful and it's also to remember when it's about the healing you know because the way we talk to ourselves also very much impacts our ability to heal our ability to do anything you know so language is a very very powerful powerful tool Hmm. and i guess with it being um you know invisible i mean a lot of things are happening now but it's still one of those parts you know that's kind of like not really explored and um you know there are no consequences i know that coercive control is part of the serious criminal act i think it's called here in in the uk Uh, But then you have to be able to prove it. And oftentimes you cannot, you know, and uh, because you may have a trace on on the phone with different texts and whatever you get, but you'd never have a proof of what's actually happening within, you know, your your home. Or very rarely, at least, you know, so it's very, it's very tricky. It is hard, as you say, because there's, you know, it's perception too, you know, and it's it's a bit like mental health and holistic procedures as well. There's, there's all that. It's, it's very hard to sort of definitely say, yes, that is it. Yeah. Which which actually makes it better and worse, you know, as you say, because it's so hard to prove, you know, and you might read a text and take context from it and someone else might go, well, that's there's nothing wrong with that text, but you know the, what's yeah. attached to it. Yeah, there's a lot happening underneath, you know, mm. and because of the dynamic and because your identity gets eroded more and more and more until there's basically nothing left. So what ends up happening is that you are dead on the inside. Like literally, it's like this big black void. There is nothing left, mm. but you don't understand why you're still alive because obviously you're still standing here. You're still breathing. You're still uh, functioning. A lot of uh 
including myself, a lot of uh, clients I work with, they're highly functioning women, you know, they're career women, they, they run their own companies, they have senior management positions, and they're still performing their job. But actually, there is nothing left, you know, when they look in the mirror, they don't see anything. Wow. I'm curious, what, what, what changed? What changed? At the end of the relationship. What do you mean? Well, what, what caused the end of the relationship? I mean, did it just get to the point when enough was enough or you well, decided? I got, to the point, I got to the point where I was uh, literally contemplating whether I would kill myself. Because it was like, I can't, like I was 21 and then I was thinking like 40 years ahead and I'm like, no, there's no way I can do this. But obviously I didn't have the intention, you know, to actually put the, uh, an end to my life because in my in my mind I was like there has to be more to this you know than that and uh, so I think it's probably a, a personality trait as well and the kind of person once I've had enough I have enough you know and then I just change it uh, no matter what you know so I guess you go through that kind of surrender moment where you're like no, I'm done, and whatever will happen now will happen, you know. And uh, I've had the same thing when I stopped smoking. I never thought I would ever stop smoking. And then I just went like, no, you know what, I've had enough, and I just stopped. I never counted the days or anything, you know. And um, I guess it's also when your survival instinct kicks in, that's very powerful as well, actually. And, uh, yeah, as I said, it wasn't the only relationship like that. And talking about it now, it actually makes me realize how horrible it really was, whereas I haven't even thought about this mm. in so many years because the more recent relationships, you know, it's it's more fresh in your mind. But then obviously at the end of the day, it's all interconnected, isn't it? And uh, in, in retrospect, looking, knowing now what you know and looking back, I mean, how how would you categorize that? As, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, with your symptoms of PTSD, if I remember rightly. You know, is is this close to Stockholm syndrome? You know, what what are we looking at here? Well, back then I didn't have, didn't consciously experience any symptoms. You know, mm. I just carried on and shifted my focus. And uh, but then it's also a denial mechanism, right? So you keep yourself really busy, uh, so you don't have to deal with your shit, right? And uh, I think when we are younger, it's easier. But what happens is that uh, all this trauma actually gets stuck in your body because you've never actually released it. There is a lot of suppressed emotions. Uh, there is a lot of faulty programming memories, you know, that may trigger flashbacks, all those kind of things. And uh, back then, I didn't, I cannot recall having any of those kind of symptoms. You know, I just carried on with my life. But then with every uh, other relationship afterwards, more and more got triggered, you know, and, and came came to, to the surface to a point where then I actually had to do something because otherwise I would have literally died. I'm assuming your self-esteem at, you know, departing that relationship and all the rest was pretty low. Uh, it was, but it wasn't as bad 
like I, I bounced back pretty quickly back then. So I'm 21, right? So um, that was that was pretty uh, pretty quick actually. I just continued doing my thing. Mm. Um, so if you want to talk about self-esteem, we have to go a few years ahead. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm curious then. So really, you, you've you know, you've looked at this internship. So you've come out of this relationship. You're 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 picking up. The internships come into play, and then London. You were saying you, you moved to London around twenty four, twenty five. Do you say? Yeah, yeah. Moved to London, and uh, you know, just did my thing in London and out of the Bavarian countryside. You know, you kind of become who you are, and uh, you know, you you are away from any constraints there may be even though I have to say I've been very lucky with that kind of uh, constraint thing you know there was never religion involved in my upbringing my parents have always been super supportive even if they knew it wouldn't work they would still let me do it you know so I can learn my own lessons they would always believe in me so I, I've been very fortunate that I didn't have any faulty programming uh, in that part you know um, I just, you know, did my thing and I partied hard and I worked hard and uh, became a certified chartered accountant. So I did my studies here and uh, yeah, just did my thing. And even though I still didn't like numbers, it, you know, it, I was very good at it and it just paid me the lifestyle that I wanted to have. I was traveling a lot, you know, and um, yeah, it was good. I didn't have a relationship, though, by choice, you know, um, because, as I said, that's kind of like the denial part. You think you're, you've dealt with something, but actually all you're doing is you're removing the triggers. So then if I had gotten into a relationship, all of that stuff would have come up, obviously, but I didn't. So I basically stayed single in my 20s and just did my thing and focused on my career and became very successful in that. That's really interesting. So, despite not like, <laughs> despite not liking numbers, you know, you you proceeded in this career. You've kept going, but obviously, it was it was treating you well. It was you know, as you say, you were successful. You were going, and I'm sure financially it was helping. And you were you know, living you know, partying hard, working hard in London, which is a great great thing. Yeah, no, it was good fun, good fun, and that uh, no, was great, really. And then I uh, had that, after six years in London, I kind of was like, oh, I'm a bit over it now. I lived in Amsterdam in between for a bit, but that was too boring for me um, then. <laughs> so I would still come back to London almost every weekend. And, um, and then uh, I traveled to LA. And actually, I wanted to go to San Francisco because I woke up one morning and I thought I have to live in San Francisco. I, I don't know where that came from. I had never been to San Francisco, but I woke up. I have to move to San Francisco. <laughs> and then I uh, booked a flight and the flight to LA was cheaper than to San Fran. So I thought, all right, let's fly to LA. It was the first time uh, to the States, you know, and then you can do a road trip up the PCH and, you know, so I flew into LA and uh, then I got stuck in LA and <laughs> uh, and then from I, I managed to go up to San Francisco for two days because my flight was out of San Francisco but I think I spent like six or eight weeks in LA and 
what happened was because I was quite active in, in the, the rock scene in London, you know, um, the rock scene is very small internationally as well. So if you go to an after party in London, it's the same people you will see at the after party in LA. So I went to a Steel Panther after party and I bumped into someone who I knew who he was, but we had never talked, but he also knew who I was. And uh, I just got up from my seat and I said, hey, hi, I'm here from London. And he's like, oh my God, I can't believe you're here. And he kind of took me under his wing. So I never got to see the tourist Hollywood. I actually went straight into the, uh, you know, Hollywood life kind of thing. And from that point on, I would spend, I would basically split my time between London and um, LA. And I would always do contract work for a few months and you know, save the money and studying for my ACCA. And then I would sit my exams and I would finish my contract and then I would go traveling for three months, you know? And uh, so I split my time between London and LA and I went on this mission that I really wanted to live in LA. Looking back now, I'm like, what were you even thinking? But I really wanted to live in Hollywood. <laughs> and so, um, at one point, um, I was working for Reuters at that time. I tried to transfer with them uh, to LA, but they wouldn't allow it. And then uh, someone pissed me off at work and I quit. And I've always had a healthy relationship with myself when it was about work. You know, if somebody tried to fuck me over at work, it would never happen, you know? And uh, there was something, you know, that didn't work out, so I quit. And I didn't even have a plan B or anything, but then I was like, hold on a second. Now you've already quit. Why don't you go to LA and try to make that happen? And I was uh, almost 30 at that time. And uh, so I had already quit my job. I sold all my stuff. I gave up my flat in London and I got on the plane to LA. I literally walked around Hollywood with my CV, my accountant's CV <laughs> in my hand and knocking on doors, literally. And I was there for three months, which is, you know, the, the visa waiver tourist thing you're allowed to stay. And uh, it didn't happen because I needed a sponsor, right? And I could have get, gotten married, but I was like, no, I'm really good at what I do. I deserve to have a work visa, you know? And uh, so after three months, I had to go back to, I didn't even know where to go because everything I owned was on my shoulders, right in my backpack. And my visa ran out and it was literally the first time in my life that something I wanted didn't work out. So that was a big learning <laughs> for me. And I went back to my parents because I didn't have anything anywhere. And because Bavarian countryside, I managed 10 days. And I'm like, you know what, I'm, I'm going back to London. So then I started uh, over in London uh, from scratch, finding a flat, finding a, a job, uh, found myself a husband unintentionally. <laughs> And um, then about three months in, I find a uh, message in my spam folder and it was a German name and it said communication. I have no idea why I opened that 
email. But then it said, oh, is LA reaching out for you? Uh, I've tried to call you, but your phone is off, so I'm not sure I get out of the country. I really would like to talk to you. Can you give me a call? And then it said, uh, general manager, Native Instruments. And Native Instruments is a music company, music production company, um, German music production company. And I had actually um, managed to get into their office. I snuck my way in there. <laughs> And I talked to the finance manager and he actually at that point said, you're much more qualified for this role than I am. And I knew it wouldn't go anywhere, but he was so full of himself that he actually mentioned me to the CFO. Oh, there's this German girl, you know, she just showed up and wanted my job kind of thing. And the CFO at that time was already not happy with his performance. So he went to the general manager and said, find that girl, you know? So then eventually they did find me because I had put HR into CC when I sent a thank you email. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you just have those light bulb moments. And uh, so anyway, she found me and then I found the, the spam email and uh, she's like, oh, I have nothing to offer you right now. But and I remember that as if it was today because she was a complete stranger, right? She had never met me. She uh, All she knew was my story and she had my CV. That was all. And she said to me, I know exactly how you feel. Hang in there. I'm going to do my very best to help you out here. And uh, then eventually uh, I had a job interview. I had to go to Berlin. And uh, I mean, for me, it was perfect. I wanted to work with that company. It was music industry. You know, in the music industry, it doesn't matter if you are, if you have colored hair and you're fully tattooed, you know, as an accountant, because uh, it's welcome that you are not like you're the stereotypical accountant. And uh, eventually I would get uh, the job offer and uh, move back to LA. Well, that's amazing. So you, so you've, you've bounced back, you've left LA, you, you arrive back home for a short time, back to London, and then you get this email and that's, so are you back to Germany or back to LA? LA. LA. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So then I moved to LA and by the time I moved to LA, because I had split my time in LA uh, between London and LA for two years, I had my friends there, you know, I knew my way around. Um, I had my crazy partying days, you know, when I was traveling. So I was, you know, ready to actually go and work. Hmm. And so you were, you were married at this point as well, right? Uh, yeah, we got married like four weeks before I moved to the U.S. and then he came with me. Cool, cool. So how was it then? You were into your into your LA lifestyle and you were loving it, right? I was loving it. Um, I worked a lot, a lot. I mean, American work standards are very different to here. Like seventy hours a week is completely normal, you know. And uh, but I. You know, every time I saw the Hollywood sign, I'm like, oh, wow, I can't believe it. I could see it from my desk at work, you know, and I'm like, wow, how did I do that? <laughs> but I was very clear, you know, on my, that's, that's how powerful uh, imagination is because I had everything laid out in my head and it would then exactly happen to, that way, you know, where I would work, where I would live, the car would drive, like everything I had in my head first. And it happened exactly how I had, had it in my head. And I mean, I was loving it, you know, and then obviously uh, it was California and sunshine and palm trees, which eventually got quite exhausting, the heat. <laughs> I'm more of a Nordics kind of person, 
but in the beginning, you know, it's just like, wow, I can't believe I have a palm tree outside my window. I live in Hastings now. I have a palm tree outside my window, but I didn't know that living in London, right? <laughs> and um, yeah, so it was it was pretty good for a while. And uh, then my uh, ex-husband, he kind of got caught up in that whole Hollywood thing. You know, it was all about the bling and the glam and all of that so then i basically ended up working 70 hours a week and uh he would go out partying surfing uh, taking the mustang out you know having this hollywood lifestyle um but i was the one bringing the money in and uh eventually uh i i said to him uh you know it doesn't work that way you know we are in this together so you have to pay half the rent and you know and we moved to a new country as well right so uh obviously that makes it even more important that you do this together right and uh then he said i don't know uh i don't know where your problem is you make enough money for the two of us anyway and as I told you, when it's about work and, you know, I spent two years building this for me and making it happen, that's when I called a lawyer, you know, and uh, well, sent him back to the UK. But uh, it sounds very cutthroat right now, but I mean, it was, it was very emotional for me because uh, I was still having this unhealthy programming, right, where I was like, wow, I can't believe somebody would marry me you know and then having this uh taken away not taken away but not working out uh it took quite a few months for me to to actually you know process that and uh kind of get back on my feet but yeah how i don't regret you, it you know how long were you married not a long nine months it was very rock and roll. I mean, we got married after four weeks, you know, and then four weeks later we moved to LA. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was great while it lasted, you know, but if you want to have a substantial relationship, obviously there needs to be more than uh, partying and, you know, so. Mm. A lot of change there. Yeah. So the divorce came into play then when you were divorced and uh, it was really tough for me um, I took that really personally and uh, then I think like three months or four months somebody then said to me uh, pointed out how many months I've been crying compared to how long I was married and I'm like well I guess they have a point <laughs> And uh, then I kind of, you know, snapped myself out of that. Again, no healing work done, just snapped myself out of that. And uh, then just carried on and, you know, I had an amazing life in, in LA. And there were about a couple of years that I really, really enjoyed, you know, living this rock and roll, uh, California, Hollywood life. And, I uh, was head of finance at the time. And uh, yeah, so I was always kind of that music person who is not actually a musician because I'm the accountant, right? But I was still involved in the music industry and, it, you know, it was my thing, right? And 
uh, I was always the one who had her shit together and who was successful. I could always pay my bills. I had this really good job. I had this really nice flat. And um, so I stood out a little bit, and you know, having everything in order so much while still engaging in this old rock and roll uh, lifestyle. And uh, until I was introduced to another guy. <laughs> And um, that was actually what then would uh, almost be my downfall. And that one, that's what makes that, that initial story so almost irrelevant. And I know it's not. Um, but because what happened then seemed so much worse, which makes the other one sound like nothing, you know. And he was introduced to me. Uh, through my best friend at the time so obviously your guard's already down and uh, you know oh you really have to meet him you guys will get on and I remember the first time I saw him um, but he didn't do anything for me right he looked like a cartoon character like seriously like goggly eyes and long crazy hair and tatted up and like a Hollywood musician kind of guy right and uh but i'm like okay hi nice to meet you and then that was it and within a very short period of time like literally days i had fallen in love with that guy so hard i had never loved anyone like that in my life and uh that's the tricky thing with that form of abuse and what actually happens which i didn't know at the point but i know now is um they mirror you so much that what happens is you fall in love with yourself and that's why you think you've met your soulmate and then obviously you have like a special connection right because soulmate and all of that and literally within a few days i was like like that guy was everything for me and he was so loving and he was so understanding and uh he was the one who actually taught me affection like my ex-husband still calls me today the ice queen because I was always, you know, not about touch and very um, cold, a coping mechanism, right? Protecting yourself. And for some reason, that guy, he kind of unlocked that where the touch then actually became so important. That was then actually like, like my, my drug, you know? And uh, yeah, within 45 days of meeting him, not even 45 days of dating, 45 days of meeting him, I ended up in Amy. That's how quick that went. And I went from this really successful, independent, strong, smart woman to A&E, not knowing who I was, not wanting to live anymore, being a complete mess uh, with blackouts, you know, and, and uh, severe anxiety. And, and I, I had no idea what had hit me. So... Uh, which I think is quite important actually to point out to someone who's listening who might have experienced it and kind of things like, yeah, but it's, you know, it's just been a few days. It's just been a few weeks or a few months, you know, we've not been together for years. No, this can actually happen uh, like really, like almost instantly, you know. So, I mean, quickly you've, you've developed a strong rapport. As you say, the through mirroring, which is, I know, is a sort of an NLP or hypnotic technique, yeah. you know, and this, but it's, I mean, is, is that intentional? Is, is that, is that, that the way? Is the, that's the way it works. So yeah. that's what I said earlier. They are actually 
natural hypnotherapists, NLP master practitioners without actually knowing it. So hey, you know? this this was a sort of this was something he was doing naturally. That yeah. like saying, and you guys connected. Yeah, like that. As I said, the first time I looked at him, he did absolutely nothing for me. And within a few days, he was my absolute everything. And my friends were like, what are you doing? You know, because he was he was pretty much homeless. He was a drug addict. He was an alcoholic, you know, like a proper Hollywood, uh, like a typical Hollywood kind of wannabe musician kind of story, you know. And then there was me, head of finance and you know, having all of those great things going on in my life. And nobody understood what was happening because it didn't make any sense whatsoever how this would even happen. But because you are so in love, you don't listen to anybody. I mean, everybody who's (laughs) been in love knows that there is nothing else. So... um, it kind of felt like, you know, when then it, it, it turned bad, it felt like my friends had abandoned me. But I, looking back now, I don't think they did. You know, they tried to reach me, but it's not received. Yeah. yeah. So when did it start to go bad? I mean, because 45 days is not long. I mean, that's... I don't, I don't even know. Like within literally a few days, probably after a week, I experienced the first severe anxiety. And... Um, And then it basically turned out because one thing I never understood was how this could happen so quick. Um, Mm. But they are highly skilled. I mean, it's on a spectrum, right? They're like, uh, you know, some tendencies and some dabble in it. And then there are others that are really sophisticated and, you know, it's it's their thing. And uh, it actually turns out that my drinks were spiked. So I was basically put on drugs for eight months without realizing it. And uh, once I realized that, it all made sense because I literally lost it from one day to the next. And I remember I was absolutely fine. And then uh, something happened. I was so off balance and I had this anxiety and uh, didn't have anxiety before. You know, it's not like it's a, it's a condition I've had my whole life or anything. Really depressed. And my personal trainer, she actually was the first one who said to me, was your drink spiked? And I'm like, no. But then, you know, I'm talking to my personal trainer while having been out drinking the night before. So you're kind of like, no, you know. <laughs> but she was the first one who pointed it out. But I just went like, no. And when I then was in hospital, um, the uh, psychiatrist also asked me because I just kept saying, I don't know what's happening. You know, I this is not who I am, I have no mental health um, issues, you know, and it was so scary because they just took everything away from me. And then you're in America, right, with like some mental breakdown, whatever is going on. It was the scariest thing ever because I thought it would lock me up. And uh, he said to me, was your drink spiked? And I'm like, no, of course not. First of all, you know, you're out with people you trust. And you very rarely expect things like, no, you never uh, expect things like that to happen to you caused by the person closest to you. But oftentimes that's exactly the case, right? Mm -hmm. 
And um, I'm like, no, no, of course not. So I'm out with people I, I trust. And then at the same time, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, now I know that I'm partying too much. I know that I'm drinking too much. Um, you know, when you get like all those shoulds in your mind, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. You know, you shouldn't be hanging out in a bar on your own, all those kind of things. And uh, so I kind of got like this shame, defensiveness, kind of like, no, of course not. And I wish I didn't have, I hadn't had that at the time because that would probably have been the only time that somebody could have proven that something was in my blood, you know? But because I went like, no, and I'm fine. And uh, so I basically, I told them exactly what I wanted to hear to get out of there because I didn't actually have a mental health breakdown as such. You know, my, my mind, my brain was still working um, but that was basically the point where I was like, something is really bad here, but I had no idea what was going on at that time. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, to want to be in a, in a different, I say a strange country, a different country, but, and all this, I mean, were you functioning, going to work and things like that, or, you know, day to day? That's a really bizarre thing. It's like almost... I split my brain into a functioning part and a not functioning part. And I was still doing my work as normal. I actually did an MBA at that time as well. And uh, I told my, my former boss last year, uh, I saw him in Berlin and um, I told him what had happened because for them, they couldn't understand what was going on because I wanted to be there so much, you know, and they, sponsored me and everything and next thing they know is I drop everything and leave you know it didn't make any sense whatsoever and uh last year I did tell him what actually happened and he just couldn't believe it you know nobody on the outside would would have ever known that I was in a situation like that and that's the thing with invisible abuse, you know, and as I told you, a lot of people I work with, they are actually really high functioning and confident and smart and they run their own businesses or senior management in some high profile, you know, functions and uh, they do their thing. They are highly, highly functioning, but once they leave the office, that's what's going on at home, you know. It almost seems like the, the professional side you know the 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 value and the feedback and the, the recognition you were getting on the professional side compensated for what was happening on the personal side. Yes, you know, so it wasn't just a split function, but I'm it was not, actually. I'm not sure if it was compensating. I think it was what kept me alive. It is what kept me sane because uh, once I left the office, I had absolutely no touch with reality whatsoever. You know, I I had flash uh, I had not flashbacks blackouts. Um, really severe anxiety. I was not functioning. I couldn't do anything. And the only time I was functioning was once I went to the office or I was writing my exams for, for the MBA. Well, so, I've, I mean, you, you've, you've come to an A&E. So what, what then? Well, what then? He picked me up, even though he was the reason I was there in the first place. And uh, he was all like, oh, don't scare me like that. And, you know, uh, I love you so much. And the mask comes back on, right? And you're kind of like, oh, thank goodness. And But then the mask will come back off. And that's where that whole spiel starts again. And 
um, it's very calculated manipulation. You know, it's uh, you're voting your um, identity, making you feel really bad, making sure that you know that you're not worth anything, and um, and rationally you would think that you go like, stop it. You know, it's not. I, I mean, look at what what I've achieved and all of that. But because you have that whole love addiction there, it doesn't work that way. And there are so many uh, very calculated techniques that they use to um, really break you emotionally and psychologically, you know. And uh, like the one thing that I'm glad I picked up on actually uh, that was like that one part of insanity, of sanity that I still had, and all this insanity was um, he would he would be really mean to me, so um, like break me down emotionally, psychologically, where I would just be sitting there and crying and being a complete mess, and then he would leave to see some other woman uh, who, of course, is more attractive and smarter and you know like everything more than what you are not because you're some crazy person, um, which is the dynamic, right? They make you out to be a crazy person. Then you start believing you're a crazy person. You start acting like a crazy person. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And uh, he would always leave a knife or a box cutter behind when he left. And at one point I called him out because at that uh, point I didn't have any sharp objects in my, in my flat because I didn't trust myself. You know, because I was so tormented and I hated myself so much. Um, I actually called him out on it and I said, take your fucking box cutter because I'm going to use it. And he's like, oh, don't be silly. And looking back now, he actually wanted me to do his dirty work. Right. And I'm glad that it was this part of me that actually clocked it, you know, was like, uh, hold on a second, take your shit, you know, you know, where you become like self-protective and um but at that point i still don't know what's going on i still don't know it's him you know and uh then i actually i uh tried to run away if you will and i moved to the hollywood hills and i found this really nice house little cottage up on the canyon you know like you even had to climb stairs to even get up there and it was amazing and, you know, I was like, no, I can't. This is really bad for me. I need a safe space for myself. So I created, you know, this, this safe space. I uh, didn't tell anyone where I was and, uh, you know, to get away because in Hollywood, he would have found me. So I kind of, you know, went off the, the radar and it took two weeks <laughs> until uh, he had uh, actually found me and, I got a text message that he was in hospital and he overdosed on drugs. And uh, what do I do? Empath. <laughs> I go jump in the car, drive to the hospital, do all the paperwork, and I bring him home to my safe place. And then I put him back up on his feet. And then obviously the whole spiel started again. But now my, my safe place was contaminated as well, you know? Wow. I'm just I'm I'm blown away that you know you're sort of uh, almost a, it is a double life that you're leading and and everything that's going on, you know. And I mean, how was your how was your headspace? Had you started to get yourself together when you'd you've been in your safe space space for a while? 
No, it was terrible. It was uh, actually worse than when I was with him because what happens is that your withdrawal symptoms actually start kicking in. Um, but, and at that point, you know, I, because I didn't know what it was, I didn't know what would help. Uh, I actually did go to a therapist, which was the first time in my life I went to therapist, but you're in LA, right? So there are therapists everywhere. And what happens is because you don't understand, it's really something that rationally cannot be explained. You know, no matter how much you try, it does not make any sense whatsoever. You also don't have the language. Also, trauma, severe trauma actually impacts your language center in the, in the brain where you kind of cannot speak, you know, and express what's going on. So I go to the therapist and uh, everybody I work with, everybody who comes to me actually tells me exactly the same thing. So that's a universal thing that happens. You go to the therapist because you know that something's really wrong and you're in a very bad space and you need help. But what you don't know is what happened and you don't have the language to explain. So I go to see a therapist and she just looks at me and she's like, oh, I'm at a loss for words. I'm like, what do you mean? Don't you deal with this every day? You know? And she's like, yeah, but you're an extremely sad case. And I'm like, oh, wow, thanks. <laughs> so needless to say, I didn't go back, you know? So I was trying to look for help, but there wasn't any help and I didn't understand what was going on. And uh, then, uh, you know, I don't even know what I did. Oh, yeah, I went to Japan, actually. Uh, spent some time at a Buddhist temple, um, you know, trying to sort out what was going on. And uh, I had been there before, and it was amazing. But then this time, I actually, addiction, listen, <laughs> I got like a pocket Wi-Fi so I could stay connected with that guy because I was too anxious what he would be doing while I was gone. So needless to say, my trip to Japan didn't actually do me any good because I was so distracted and constantly on social media and following what he was doing and he, who he was cheating with and all of that. And uh, so eventually I just reached a point um, where I knew that I wouldn't survive another four weeks. You know, where I was literally, I, I could feel that I was running out of strength and that I didn't know how long I could keep this up any longer. And uh, then that's where I dropped everything, quit my job and, uh, yeah, went back to my parents, <laughs> as always. And uh, that's where my L.A. Uh, dream you know, turn, had turned into a nightmare and I literally had to uh, drag myself on, onto this plane to uh, save my life. How long were you in LA for in total? I mean, how long did this all happen over? Uh, I was in LA for four years and that part was only eight months, you know. But if you think about how how severe the impact was after 45 days, you can imagine if you stay within that kind of um, environment for eight months, how how severe um, that actually can be. And it feels a bit weird because this was much shorter, but much more significant than, you know, the first story. I guess the first one was more like storytelling, whereas this one is, I mean, I've dealt with it, so I'm not in the story. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like 
I tell you the, the important facts, but I don't get caught up in, oh, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, because, um, you know, I did all that, that healing. Hmm. No, it's interesting. As you say, it's, I always find it interesting. The best analogy I ever heard, you know, when you're saying a habit or a, a fear can be generated in a split second. You know, if you get a child stung by a bee, they will always likely be afraid of that bee. You know, they, yeah. and that's, uh, you know, habits and, and fears can be, you know, created in split seconds. It doesn't take years of abuse. It doesn't take, you know, it can be little or nothing. Amazing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes it can just be something someone says, but because of the conditioning that we already have, the trauma that's already stored that you've been ignoring for so long, it sets you off, you know, it takes you off. And then uh, all of a sudden you find yourself in a position where you have all those mental health challenges and, uh, you know, you may not have ever experienced it before. All of a sudden you're in such a mess, you know, and everybody just goes like, you're crazy and snap out of it. And what's wrong with you? But we shouldn't be asking what's wrong with you. We should be asking what happened to you, you know, because you're not, you're not exhibiting those symptoms for no reason. It's your body trying to, you know, somehow deal with uh, the, the trauma that you've experienced. But as I said back then, I had, I had no idea. I didn't even realize that I was being abused as such. You know, it all mm. just came later on when the puzzle pieces start, you know, clicking together. Well, what, I mean, at that point, what was it you were looking for? Do you know, or, you know, in, in that state? Was a connection? You mean you mentioned before love and connection, and yeah, like, yeah, that... it's like because you have that, and for me, which actually then goes back to the being adopted. Actually, um, I've always, and I wasn't consciously aware of that. That all came through uh, the healing work I've done, but I've always had that underlying program, this underlying current that was always there and determining every kind of relationship was that I wasn't uh, worth anything, you know? And um, I, I, I didn't even realize that because consciously I was absolutely fine, you know? But then obviously you have all those programs, you try to compensate by the work you do, the life you create for yourself, you know? Um, but then love is the most basic human desire right? We all want to be loved, you know, you want somebody who accepts you the way you are, all those kind of things. And I guess we also have, um, until we change it, that idea that, you know, if uh, there will be somebody who will take all this pain away, you know, somebody that will make us whole, and then you find your soulmate, who pretends to be doing exactly that, but what do you do? You put all your validation, uh, all your happiness uh, into the hands of somebody else who then has full control. Um, so what was I looking for? Well, obviously, you know, I also, uh, after having the failed marriage, having been single for so many years, you know, we all want love. And um, I guess that's what I was looking for. Oh, I didn't know I was looking for it until he gave it to me, you know, and then you get hooked. Out of interest, when did you know you were adopted? I uh, found out when I was 14. Okay. 
And, and, uh, and I always said, it doesn't matter to me. You know, as I said, like my parents, like me winning the lottery so consciously is a very good example of what we tell ourselves consciously, but what's actually going on underneath, you know, because consciously I always say, I don't care. I'm not interested. I don't, I don't have to meet the, the biological mother or, you know, I I have nothing missing. I've grown up in a very loving, uh, supportive uh, family. But then uh, once I did my, my healing work and those kind of things came up and um, there was like a one session I did, I, I relived my birth and I'm like, what is this? You know, because you're not supposed to have memories like that. But that's the thing, conscious mind, unconscious mind, your unconscious mind never forgets. And because it was so realistic and so graphic and, you know, it was that whole, uh, I'm not worthy um, not worth anything and um when i was exploring their programming and um the beautiful thing is that we can actually change any kind of program we have running you know we can just from an upgrade like how we would update a computer um it's our internal computer and so i did a session on that and i have actually since then i've never once even remotely thought that i'm not worthy you know uh, because i fixed it um but Having said that, what I had seen, I'm like, am I making this up? Like, how does this work? And that's where that whole holistic approach comes in that you mentioned earlier, right? It's like, what is this? Like, does this actually work? And then I I went to find um, the biological mother. And I asked her to tell me her story. And I didn't tell her anything about my experience because I wanted her to tell me. Mm. and um so i flew over to germany and met with her and she told me the story and it was completely aligned with what i had seen so she basically gave me the run-up to it and then the actual event and then the event was when my memory kicked in um you know being the baby and that's why i'm so passionate about my work because i have a very scientific brain and you know then stuff like that's going on and you're like eh? And then I, but I went out there on numerous occasions to actually find uh, the proof, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, we all have, not all, a lot of us have um, this, some sort of underlying uh, program, which is like, you know, I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable, I'm not worthy. Um, and you don't have to have severe trauma to have that kind of programming. You know, it may easily be something someone said when you were quite young, but you're you're like a sponge, right? So you took it for the truth and now for the rest of your life until up to now, it has impacted all your decisions and relationships and all of that, you know. What can I ask what age were you when you when you went to find your mother? Your biological mother, so I should say. Thirty five? Thirty six? Thirty six. Yeah. So that whole LA thing happened when I was 35. So I came back, or 34, 35, came back. And uh, yeah, then it took, I, I went into hiding for quite some some time, you know, because I was so not functioning. And I had to, I was on that mission to find something to fix that. Because in my head, it was like, hold on a second, something happened to me. There has to be something out there that can reverse the damage. 
as effectively as it was caused. I don't know, call it German efficiency. I don't know what it was, but I just went on this mission to find something. And because you go to the doctor, something happens to you, right? So then you have all those symptoms. You go to a doctor, they tell you, you have now a lifelong mental illness. You know, if you're lucky, you get CPTSD. If you are unlucky, you get a borderline personality disorder. Uh, diagnosis, which is uh, identical symptoms, uh, but depending on who you talk to, you get a label, you know, and then that's it for the rest of your life. And I was told I have to take medication for the rest of my life. And I'm like, no, like part of all of this craziness is that I was drugged. I'm not going to take drugs to make me functioning or, you know, to keep me alive. Um, so it just wasn't an option for me. And that's how I then ended up going on this, this mission to, to find something that actually works. And then once I had found it, uh, it took me five months from, you know, not being able to leave the house to go grocery shopping to being symptom free and starting my first company, you know, so. It's interesting. You, you've had these moments of revelation you've had extreme you know um circumstances happen to you you know and, and around you and but it's, it's also it seems to accompany moments of enlightenment is that a fair summary uh yeah i think when you get to a point where you literally are at the end of your road and uh it's literally like a life and death situation and um there was quite quite a substantial period of time where I couldn't have guaranteed you I'd, I'd still be alive tomorrow, you know? And um, I think what happens is once you stop fighting, by not fighting uh, the whole cause, but fighting against whatever it is that's uh, rebelling inside of you to finally pay attention, um, what happens is that you literally surrender you go from like okay i accept what is and i'm okay with whatever will be and whether that's me you know dying or surviving obviously your intention is surviving so that's where it's going to go but you get to the point where you go like well i mean that's it i can't do this any longer just have your way with me kind of thing and what happens when you've reached that point is that your awareness actually expands and uh, as I said, I have a very scientific brain. So like anything holistic and whatever, I never looked into it before, you know, but all of a sudden uh, all those new options become available. And because you're already at the end of your road, what you've tried has not worked. So you might as well try other things that are out there, you know, and then some work and others don't work. But I just literally went all in and I'm like, no, I'm going to fix that. This is not permanent. Something happened to me and I'm going to figure this out. And then I, you know, I tried so many different things. And uh, as I said, some work, others don't work. Uh, you know, because it works for me doesn't mean it works for you. There's no one size fits all thing uh, solution. Uh, but in general, I think there is a big misunderstanding, uh, misconception around mental health in general, you know, where it's just a label and then you get medication that makes you manage the symptoms, but it doesn't actually um resolve the actual issue because it doesn't address the root cause whereas if you use um holistic uh, modalities 
And again, you know, I encourage everyone to just go out there and try. Uh, obviously, you know, it's important to find the right person you can do that with because there's a lot of charlatans out there as well. Um, but especially around mental health and trauma, there are so powerful um, intervention methods without any medication that allow you to release your trauma, remove the emotional charges, you know, um, reprogram your faulty programming. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, you know. Maybe, you know, the, the program was faulty to start with. Maybe it's just outdated. And it's literally like running an update on the computer. Every now and then you run an update and then your computer just runs better, you know. And it's exactly the same thing. And there are so many... Um, uh, modalities out there that actually allow you to do that. However, it is not, uh, you know, mainstream. It's not what a doctor is going to tell you unless you have a doctor who actually encourages exploring uh, those those kind of avenues. You know. Out of interest, how was your birth? How was my birth? Very traumatic. Very bloody. <laughs> It was like an emergency C-section. Wow. Yeah. It's it's interesting. I've I've had a similar experience. I oh yeah. So I I remember being born. So it was, it was interesting. You talked about that, but obviously there's subconsciously you you've attached or sorry it it appears there's been attachments to that and there's been a lot going on since then. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, there's always more, you know, like you sort out something, all it does is it makes room for something else. But a beautiful thing about it is once you have the tools, you actually welcome it, you know, it doesn't become this, this uh, really hard, difficult, gut wrenching kind of, uh, whatever transformation, you know, because once you have the tools, and you are in tune with yourself, and you start listening, you go like, oh, hold on a second, that just ticked me off here, what's going on here? And then you just go exploring, and if it's something that's actually impacting your life, you because by that time when you've done your healing, you also have a nice network, supporting network, you know, and they're on the same page, and then you just, you know, call someone and go like, can we do a session? And then you just sort it out, but it becomes actually fun because you realize that you have so much power to actually... Uh, you know, determine who you want to be, who you actually are, your values, your beliefs, yeah. you know, it doesn't become a life sentence anymore. It's just, you know, you take control of, of who you are and, and your life. Interesting you say about taking control. I mean, the, at, at 14, there seems to be a lot happened. You know, you find out you're adopted there, you know, there's, you know, your, your Jersey trip, you know, there's, there's so much in, I mean, what, is it all, was a coincidence of that all happening together or do you think one incident was, was caused another? I'm not quite sure. I've never thought about it as like, uh, like that the year 14 was like this major year. It actually just came up now when you were taking the notes. <laughs> 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 what I said, what happened, um, but um, it, it comes across like an identity crisis. You know, you're saying first tattoo and things like that, and it's kind of almost a you know, uh, 
I don't know. I don't. I don't want to put words into your mouth, but identity crisis when you're 14. That's quite substantial. <laughs> well, to find out you're adopted at that time as well is is quite something, you know. So you, it shakes yeah. foundations. I don't know. No, yeah, it was. Um, I mean, that was that was very very um, substantial, obviously, um, to find it out. But again, for me, consciously, it didn't make a difference whatsoever at that time, you know. So my parents were still my parents and I had no adverse feelings in any kind of way. For me, it was just something like, okay, and then, you know, that's just, that's just it. So take us through to, so really, you know, 35, you found your biological mother, you're on the heel, everything's coming back. So what happened then? You know, you seem to be doing a lot of self-discovery and and really you're, it sounds like you're finding yourself. Is that is that is that fair? Uh, well, what happened? And I had another narcissist <laughs> just to reinforce the damage, you know. Absolutely right. And uh, that one was actually at that point I was already uh, aware, you know, like the puzzle pieces started coming together, and I knew about the techniques, I knew about the red flags. Um, I, you know, you, you kind of, what happens is you start obsessing about the topic and you become like a narcissistic abuse expert, you know, self-declared expert because you not have the lingo down and you just know everything, you know, and uh, then you meet someone who is really lovely and charming and so understanding. And because now you're aware, you have the language, you talk about what happened to you and, uh, but guess what? They are just a bit more sophisticated than the previous one. So they're still going to use it, you know, against against you. And eventually the mask will come off, which is actually really dangerous because it reinforces the, the unhealthy programming, you know. And uh, that one in particular, he was aware of what he was. So by me actually telling him, and that's something looking back now, is like, you know, I actually, the first night we spent together, I asked him, uh, whether he was a narcissist and I said I can see it behind your eyes I know what you are and I said that to him the very first night which actually only happened because he accidentally missed his train you know and needed a place to crash manipulation much right and uh, and he did know what he was and he was proud of it as well and then meeting someone for the first time who actually also knew who what he was it was a welcome challenge for him because I thought I I was healed, you know, because I know all of it. Um, obviously, needless to say, that's not the case. And um, it got really, really bad, you know, where all the triggers come back up. And because what actually happens is you're trying to rationally understand that whole thing, but it doesn't make rational sense because the damage is on a much deeper level. So no matter how much you obsess and how much you read, um, it's no healing. You know, there's no actual healing happening. And so you find yourself in a similar situation again. And um, But he was then actually the one that got me to the point where I was like, no, I literally, I've had enough. And my recovery, my healing became 100% commitment, you know, where... You get to the point and you take full responsibility, you know. And uh, so then I went on my self-discovery journey, um, took some time out, went to the Rocky Mountains, um, 
well before that I got got myself a really high profile job obviously so I don't have to deal with any of this um, but it doesn't help you know because it always will come back and then you get to a point you have this high profile job but you can actually not even concentrate on your day-to-day -day life and at that point I was splitting my time between, between Boston and uh, London and uh, then uh, there's something happened there at, at work and they put me on gardening leave and uh, which means I got paid for three months without working so I took that time off went to the Rocky Mountains and actually forced myself to be in nature, to sit in nature with myself because I hated myself, you know, and being with myself and with my thoughts, that was like the worst thing I could think about. It was like horrible, but I had that understanding that there is something that needs to be addressed. So I forced myself to, you know, sit in the forest, listen to the birds, quieten the mind and all those kind of things and just take some time off. And um, then when I came back, I, you know, I didn't rush back to work because I knew I was unwell. And I luckily had that buffer because of the gardening leaf where I then could just take the time off. And then I really went full in and, uh, you know, very proactively, uh, tried different things. I had a therapist at that time. Um, she couldn't really relate, but she was good in the sense of she actually held the space for me and she encouraged me to try different things. You know, she didn't make me feel bad about myself, uh, even though she didn't get the whole concept of narcissistic abuse. And that's that's the problem with uh, therapy. Um, because it's such a specific thing that unless it has happened to you, you cannot understand it. And uh, just try different things. Uh, went on a you know two day coaching uh, seminar, which was that was actually I'm gonna tell you because you're gonna like that actually. <laughs> so I'm sitting at home, I'm not working, and you know when you don't work and eventually your self confidence kind of goes like ah. Uh, I feel pretty rubbish about myself and it was really hot. So it wasn't that massive hot summer we had. It was the summer before, but it was, there were a few really hot days and I had a top floor flat. So I'm just sitting there on the couch feeling sorry for myself in front of the fan. And then I have this ad pop up on Facebook from the coaching Academy, a free two day seminar, uh, about life coaching and uh chelsea harbor hotel and i'm like oh that sounds fancy i've never been to that part of town i bet they have ac so i went to the, <laughs> i went to that seminar and the first day i was like oh this is really interesting because it wasn't a sales event you actually actively got to start coaching you know with like exercises and all of that and uh, the key of healing is so you turn to focus on yourself so obviously being there in this coaching seminar who was i thinking of of me you know there were all those coaching exercises the second day i'm like oh they they offer this protege program where it's like corporate and executive coaching and life coaching and small business coaching and NLP and it's like this full program and I'm like hmm all right so actually I could add the corporate and executive to what I already did because at that time I did a lot of around leadership and uh, you know I had this track record of creating high functioning teams or transforming low functioning teams into high functioning teams and I'm like and then eventually maybe I can transition out 
third day, I applied for the program. Uh, Ten days later, I incorporated my first company. And I just went on that. That's where my self-development mission kind of started. So I had my therapy. I got very dedicated in self-care. You know, I had a dedicated self-care day. Then I started my coaching journey. And uh, obviously, the, the beautiful thing was it wasn't theoretical because I learned how to coach, but I was also coached. I got a mentor, you know, and uh, all of that. And I discovered NLP through uh, the program. And NLP was such a game changer for me. Whether I went on, I didn't even finish a protege program. I already went on to train as NLP master practitioner and I became an NLP trainer. And I utilized all that training to actually use the tools to um, fix myself, you know. And uh, I, I still had my therapist at the time, I had my mentor. So that's what you do you build this network. And then through the NLP, I came across hypnosis. So then I got trained in hypnosis. I love hypnosis. <laughs> and um, so I was very actively working on myself and trying different things. And the things that really made a huge impact on my well-being, um, I, I then got trained in uh, because I personally think it's very important that the person you work with has the right credentials. Um, and uh, so then eventually, you know, I would then start first, I did like normal life coaching and you become a coach and you get confident in that. And then I started uh, coaching uh, narcissistic abuse survivors, very specifically, uh, obviously with my own experience and then the, the training that I had done. And based on all of that and the experience from from my clients, I then was able to build a program specifically designed for the purpose of narcissistic abuse recovery. And uh, so I had this huge transformation within. And seriously, I went from like the Phoenix in the ashes kind of thing, you know, um, where actually people that knew me uh, during that time would go like, can I have what you had? Because it was just so incredible what was possible in such a short period of time because they saw what a mess I was. I was barely functioning. I couldn't even leave the house because I would always get triggered all the time. Five months later, symptom free, you know? And uh, so uh, then I started building this and then at the same time continued working on myself. And as I told you earlier, eventually it gets fun, you know? It's not, it's not horrible anymore. It's like, oh, I don't like that. That doesn't work for me. Let's just change it. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be anything traumatic because all of a sudden you have like all those tools. So then you can play around with it. Like I was eating too much chocolate during the lockdown. I don't even like sweet, but it was like kind of like a comfort thing. So I do a little thing, a little exercise, and now I don't like chocolate anymore. So, you know, you can have fun with it. <laughs> it doesn't have to be like uh, terrible. And uh, yes, I went through this transformation. I'm still working on myself, you know, it's a lifelong, lifelong thing. And then in the meantime, I was able to, to build a solid program that actually helps people that had something like that happen to them because you're so lost, you're so alone, nobody understands you, you're struggling with severe mental health challenges, um, which basically kind of put you on a blacklist, right? You're written off now for the rest of your life. And uh, I'm basically working on removing those labels and uh you know 
helping those women to get back on their feet, to become symptom-free. At the same time, I'm very actively working on getting my work out there in the professional uh, context. Uh, so I give talks not only for abuse survivors, but uh, also in front of uh, my peers, like fellow therapists, and just to introduce them to, to the work um, because it's so common. And if you are in the uh, therapeutic field and you deal with trauma, it's very likely that somebody walks into your office who has experienced that, but because you don't, you cannot relate, you don't necessarily get the results, but you can actually easily get the results if you know what you need to do. You know, so I'm kind of like I have like those two avenues that I'm uh, working on now, uh, where it's about helping the survivors, but also challenge the way we treat mental health, how we look at it and actually, you know, um, encourage that shift in, uh, uh, you know, awareness, what's actually possible. Well, it's, it's, it's amazing how you've, you've gone through this journey and do you find, um, well, first of all, say, how is your ego? If you don't mind me asking. My ego? Mm. It's all right, I think. <laughs> no, it's just, I was curious because some people, you know, some people are very conscious of it. And because that's, that's what I was going to ask really was how common is narcissism? It's very common. It's about one in five. Okay. So, but the thing is, we also have to keep in mind, because you asked about the ego, we all need a healthy uh, form of narcissism in us, you know, we have to have a healthy um, uh, self-perception, you know, we, we have to have self-confidence to be able to achieve uh, what, uh, what we want to achieve, uh, but then obviously it can tip into uh, unhealthy that makes sense so there is because that's what i was trying to work out is saying is there is there a, an element of narcissism in everyone but is there a, a good or a, a you know is there a healthy level of it yeah there is a healthy level of it and if you think about uh, i mean narcissism is uh, uh, yeah, narcissism personality disorder is like a spectrum you know you have people that have some tendencies you have the narcissist you have the psychopath on the whole other end of the spectrum you know it's all the same personality disorder just to a different extent and then you have the empath on the other side who has absolutely zero narcissistic tendencies and that's uh, absolutely um, unhealthy as well you know because if you don't have a, a healthy um, self uh, image self-respect uh, believe in yourself then of course you're gonna put it in other people's hands, you know. So there has to be has to be a balance. And um, because you did ask about my ego, I think. I mean, one thing I find very difficult in all of this because obviously I, I'm on this mission and I do podcasts, I do the public speaking, you know, I have my social media following and everything. That's actually something I find very difficult. The the whole social media part. You know, where I go like, well, you know, I am in narcissistic abuse recovery, but then I have to post fucking selfies of myself every day because that's what gets the engagement. Um, that's actually something I'm working on uh, right now because, you know, if I, I want to turn my program into an online program, so there has to be a lot of online marketing. And uh, obviously it's how we raise awareness, how we put ourselves out there. 
And uh, so that's something uh, I am working on for myself to become more comfortable uh, with that because unfortunately that's just how things work nowadays, right? Sure. Uh, but then having said that, when I won my award for my program, I mean, I felt pretty damn good about myself. When I see that photo, I'm like, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but I, saw that. That was, I think. That was last year you won that award, right? Yeah. Last year. And I'm, I'm up for uh, another award finalist for NLP in healthcare, actually, for the contribution I, my work uh, makes towards uh, mental health. Uh, improvement for for abuse survivors well it, it's an amazing uh, i mean what you what you've been through is it's phenomenal and it puts you in a perfect position to be you know not only to be trained in this but also to as you say you when you when you can understand how someone may be feeling you know that's that's very powerful yeah and because i've done my work on myself before I started out doing any of that, that means I can actually hold the space, you know, because what you also often find is that, you know, um, the other person might get triggered or in, you can sense it in the energy, you know, um, but because I've done so much work on myself before even doing that, and then I got trained. And that's, I think, what allows me to actually hold this space because every single story I hear is literally straight out of the movies. Like some of those stories make my story sound like absolutely nothing where you go like, wow, how is this real life? You know, and uh, to be able to hold this space for this other person who's going through those horrors, you know, um, I think uh, it was really important that I really did this deep dive work and literally didn't leave one stone unturned. And I, you know, reprogrammed my whole, my whole brain and resolved the baggage and, you know, and um, so I'm glad I did it that way yeah. and focused on myself first to then, now be able to help others through this um, because I'm, I'm very well aware that uh, my personality had a lot to do with how this all turned out because my whole life I was always like that, you know, always a fighter and always finding solutions and uh, challenging the status quo and not accepting things necessarily how they are told, uh, how we are told. And uh, so, uh, yeah. That's amazing. And is is there such a thing as self narcissism, or is that would that we would we know that as inner criticism or something else? What do you mean by self narcissism? Well, uh, I suppose it's and it's it's my lack of understanding in the area. I suppose no, it it appears that narcissism is almost something that someone is doing to you or a condition that they're laying upon you or, or how they're making you feel? Well, no, the narcissism is yours, right? So as I said, everyone in us has a certain for, uh, extent of narcissism and it can be unhealthy in both directions. Um, what they do to you is basically the dynamic, you know? So um, they need a certain supply, energy supply, to you know feel so grandiose and you know uh, one one of the big things is that they make you feel inferior right so uh you know there is like this energy exchange and you 
as the empath, you have that kind of, you need to supply, which is love. And then uh, they have to the supply, which is the validation. So it creates this really unhealthy codependent dynamic, you know, but uh, self-narcissism, I still don't know what you mean by that, but narcissism as such is yours, you know, like on the person, you're not doing narcissism to somebody else, mm. if that makes sense. No, it does. It does. It's, it's sort of, and thank you for clarifying that, you know, it's, uh, would I mean, and if if I were to ask, you know, do you have, are you, do you have an inner critic of yourself? Yeah, of course. And does that, mm-hmm. is there a connection then, or is it all one one and the same? Connection to? Narcissism. Well, if I was a narcissist, I didn't have that inner voice, like that critic. Okay. Okay. Because uh, a narcissist, uh, like unhealthy narcissistic tendencies, uh, has no self-awareness, mm. right? So uh, you wouldn't have that voice that goes like, uh, nah, you know, like that chatterbox. Because you think you're amazing. You are like the whole world evolves around you. Uh, but yeah, of course, I have an inner critic. But because I think I'm so... I'm best friends with my unconscious mind, right? We're like good bodies. Like sometimes I just sit there with my pendulum and just check in if everything's okay. Um, so when something actually comes up and I hear like whatever the chatterbox has to say, um, I'm like, okay, so what is this really about? You know, because there's a rational aspect to it. And then there is the unconscious aspect, which is usually driven by the emotion, you know, before that comes in. Mm-hmm. Oh wow, that's awesome! So, I mean, do you? Uh, this is an ongoing process for you. It seems you know. Do you have to protect yourself, and and you know, or, or are you now aware enough to to be able to 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 work through it? Um, I think everyone needs to protect themselves, and everybody uh, should just continue to work on themselves because, as I said, there is always something else you know there will always be people that push our buttons in one way or another Uh, especially you know when we talk about relationships and uh, everybody has their insecurities and uh, I think I'm at a point where I've sorted out the majority of the really unhealthy stuff so anything that's still like underneath there there must be like really horrendous stuff if it hasn't come up yet and it's still (laughs) uh, protected. Um, But of course, if I have uh, a trigger, then again, I call someone in my network um, and uh, ask them to help me sort it out. Or obviously I have the whole toolbox myself. Being a clinical hypnotherapist, I also have supervision. And uh, yeah, I think... Uh, like self-care for example is not just something that I preach to my clients it's also something I have to engage in because otherwise uh, it is a very heavy topic you know and uh, if I don't protect myself if I don't look after my own mental health if I don't take the time out when I need time out uh, working with all this trauma working on social media all the time um obviously I wouldn't be able to do the work that that I do to that extent because I would constantly also feel anxious and be on edge. So yes, I have to have my own uh, strategies in place to protect myself. So 
are you, are you involved in accountancy at all now or are you away from that completely? Uh, no, no, I still do some uh, startup consulting. So when, you know, a startup grows exponentially and all of a sudden an Excel spreadsheet isn't enough, then I come in and build them a finance function, put the processes in place um, and liaise with the external accountants, hire the right person, that kind of thing. And uh, I actually enjoy it very much because it's when I can, you know, when I can just be, I don't have to hold the space for somebody. I don't have to be a hundred percent aware of my language. Um, you know, I can just sit there, you give me a problem and I sort it out. And for me, it's like resting my brain, you know, and people always look weird at me when I, what are you doing today? I'm doing finance today. I have to rest my brain. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's um, it's binary right there's a right answer or a wrong answer yeah and you know? uh i quite enjoy it because you know you use your brain in a very different way to coaching and uh, i quite like the you know switching i don't do much finance work uh but every now and then it's just really nice you know mm. do you do you like yourself or love yourself I love myself. I like to take myself on a date every now and then. Usually <laughs> great things happen when I take myself on a date. <laughs> and uh, I mean, as you said, the inner critic, of course, is there. Do I have bad days where I look in the mirror and just focus on my wobbly bits? You know, of course. Um, but uh, in general, nowadays, when I look in the mirror, you know, I quite uh, like the person who, who looks back at me. Mm. Oh, awesome. Sometimes I have conversations, you know, because uh, you can actually do great things with a mirror because your eyes is your door, right, to your soul. And uh, sometimes, I know it sounds weird and you can think I'm a weirdo, but it actually works. Sometimes I just stand there and I just, you know, check in with myself and, you know, or even if that voice comes on when you're standing from the mirror, maybe today you don't actually like what you're seeing, you know, really. Now, what's this about? And I actually have those conversations, you know. And um, I think it's really important um, that we have a healthy uh, relationship with ourselves. And I think the more healing you do, the more in tune you become uh, with yourself and you start listening when something is wrong without having a judgment, you know. You just go like, oh, okay, so let's see what we can do. And then you kind of you know, become this whole person rather than having one part at once that and one part that. And then there is another part that's causing some turmoil and you just become uh, content and uh, in, in yourself, you know. Out of interest, would you classify yourself as, a, as an intuitive person? Yeah. Yeah. And is that, is that heightened senses? Is that, you know... Is, is that just through your experiences or do you think that's come from earlier in life? Mm, I think I've always been quite intuitive. That's how I've been able to um, create my life, you yeah. know, just um, listening to your instincts, listening to your gut. Um, I'm I'm known for making the impossible, being able to make the impossible happen. And I think uh, intuition has a lot to do with it. 
because you oftentimes you don't know the answer just yet or you don't know how to get there however there might be something happening that feels right and then you just go with that you know and uh, i mean that's how i ended up in hastings i didn't know anyone here i didn't know anything it's just i met someone in a pub who mentioned hastings and i'm like oh I'll check it out and then it felt right so i just did it and uh it was amazing. I'm so glad I'm down here and not in London uh, anymore right now. But uh, I think I've naturally always been very intuitive. What happened, however, throughout all those um, abusive relationships is that you lose your connection with your intuition because you feel like you can't trust yourself anymore because you've overwritten it so many times. Because when you start out on that relationship, your, your intuition kicks in always. Like every single person tells me, I knew right from the start. But what you do is you overwrite it. You overwrite it over and over and over again until you actually are disconnected. So that's also part of the healing where you start learning um, to trust your intuition again. Mm, makes sense. Just out of curiosity, and, and I'm, not, I'm not chasing up on your religion, but would you call yourself spiritual? I'm spiritual. Mm. Yeah. The thing with uh, trauma is it's literally where science and spirituality meets because the damage is on such a deep level that you cannot rationally explain it away. You actually have to dig in. And that's why I said what happened when my mind, just my awareness just expanded, you know. Um, I am spiritual. Uh, I'm also scientific. So... Um, but it's not mutually exclusive. What I don't like uh, is this pseudo spirituality, which is currently so um, trendy. You know, uh, when uh, you know you have a lot of people that call themselves spiritual. You know, they have their, they they do their yoga, they do their whatever um, practices they have, but actually they are not doing the healing. You know. So meditation is good. It's very useful. However, if you want to heal, you have to dig deeper than that, you know. And uh, but it's each to their own. Uh, and there are scary things buried in all of us, you know. And it takes courage to dig them out. But um, I cannot recommend it uh, enough because it's the most liberating thing you can ever do um, in your life. And what will happen with your life uh, is that you can't even imagine it before. You know, like when I look at my life now compared to how it was th three years ago, it couldn't be any more different, you know, because all of a sudden it's not what I thought it should be. It is actually in line with who I am and what's important to me. And, um, you know, so. You, you have a great energy about you. You know, I must say, there's, um, you can just tell you're very, you appear to be very grounded. Thank you, I am. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, as I said, it's a continuous practice. If I stop today, with working on myself, with, you know, my Buddhist practice, my self-care practice. Um, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here the way I, I am, am now. But it becomes just so natural, you know, because you are so used to feeling so shit about yourself 
And then you get used to feeling really good about yourself, uh, not in a narcissistic way, you know, in a healthy uh, way where, of course, life still applies, shit still happens. However, now you have the tools and that's where the resilience comes back in that you asked earlier, you know, um, because if you have a healthy brain structure, your resilience, you know, it goes hand in hand. And uh, self-care builds resilience. You do your healing work, it builds resilience. So everything that life throws at you now all of a sudden uh, isn't uh, a disaster anymore, even if it's something really bad, you know, and before it might have knocked you out for like a year going into a, a big black hole. Whereas now, well, you maybe have like two days or something and then you go like, all right, let's get the toolbox out, you know? That's pretty amazing. Um, bit of a change of, change of pace. <laughs> First tattoo and favorite tattoo? First tattoo doesn't exist anymore. Okay. <laughs> so it wasn't your favorite, okay. Uh, no, it was a, it was a Chinese um, symbol, uh, which apparently, I was 14, we were on holidays in Hungary, and nobody was tattooed at that time. And... Uh, because it was apparently a Chinese R, and my dad thought Ronia is my name, you know, might as well. But he didn't like it. He was like, I hope it really hurts. But, um, you know, I thought it would be pretty badass to come home with a tattoo. I remember being in PE and having, like, my sleeve rolled up both sides because I had, like, this tiny little Chinese <laughs> symbol there. Uh, anyway, it's covered up by now. And obviously, there is no Chinese R, but <laughs> that's how they sold it. And uh, favorite tattoo? Um, I have so many. I've actually documented my whole journey in tattoos. Um, so every time I reached a significant milestone, I turn it into a tattoo. Uh, so I have this angel. Uh, which uh, obviously is me. And uh, so that angel has gone through her journey. So I have several angel tattoos, um, which started out with a fallen angel, uh, fittingly, <laughs> a fallen angel on Hollywood Boulevard, uh, which is on my ribs, actually, because I needed something that hurt more than my heart, uh, which didn't work. Uh, I had a five, five-hour session, six-hour session, didn't feel a thing. That's, that's how how intense the, the pain was I was in when I was going through that, you know. And then uh, I turned into a hanged angel, like the hanged man in the tarot. Uh, that was the suspension, suspension period when I realized that it's actually a natural part of transformation when the whole world you knew doesn't exist anymore, when all your values and beliefs are called into question. And, you know, like a hanged man who has, like, the coins falling out of their pockets. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not into tarot, um, but I found uh, symbolism quite, uh, it made me think differently. So I turned a hanged man into a hanged angel, and, uh, which is on my right thigh. And it took about a year to finish that one because it's, it's quite big. And it was quite interesting. By the time I had my last session, it was literally when I was coming out of that suspension period. And uh, so that's the hanged angel. And then the recent one, which uh, right now, I guess, is my favorite tattoo 
Uh, I can't say favorite tattoo because I have my parents tattooed as well. So <laughs> obviously that has to be a favorite tattoo as well. Um, it's the, the Queen of Cups, uh, but as an angel. And the Queen of Cups is, um, you know, a, a strong woman who is very much in tune with her emotions and uh, spiritual, but very grounded. And um, she sits on her throne at a pebble beach. And I just moved to Hastings. So I'm like, well, come on. Because <laughs> obviously it's a pebble beach here. So I turned the Queen of Cups into an uh, angel. And that's basically the current uh, state. And obviously, I don't know what's going to happen after, but this one is in progress right now. It's a bit delayed because of Corona, because I cannot travel. My tattoo is just in Amsterdam. But uh, I think right now that's that's uh, my favorite one because I feel connected with this one. You know, it really symbolizes the state I'm at uh, right now. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, earlier, you, you sort of you mentioned sort of past lives. Mm. Is that something do you know or? I haven't explored it. Um, my brain is too scientific for that. Um, however, I don't say it doesn't exist. And I'm very well aware of uh, cell memory because obviously I've done my own cell memory releases. Um, I've also explored a little bit more about uh, memories that you have that may not be yours, you know, um, or things that happen in the pregnancy uh, that you then trauma that you carry forward. Uh, and certain conditionings that are just wired into you, uh, regardless of whether this has happened to you in, in your life or, you know, if that was passed on. So, uh, I mean, that's not much different to past lives, really. You know, generational, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've heard about epigenetics, you know, where uh, you just... Uh, pass on certain things uh, the good news is you can release it just as much as as if it was your own you know you just have to access uh, the, the cells and the memories and uh, so but I, I've not done like a, a past life I mean, it hasn't come up maybe I have too much shit in my current life <laughs> you know um, I, I, it I, I, hasn't I, come up that I'm like a, a witch burn on the stake or something you know so that's amazing well that's the thing I wasn't sure I've never heard of epigenetics so that's, that's thank you for sharing that that's that'd be, oh, you uh, haven't heard of epigenetics no very interesting mm. no it's um, it's interesting so um, talk to us about rock Who's your favorite bands? What's your thing? It's still Metallica. You know, first love never dies. So uh, Metallica. Um, I think my top four probably is Metallica, Stone Sour, Volbeat, and Avenged Sevenfold. So it's more hard rock, really, than metal. But... Uh, what what is it? Is it the the frequency? Is it the atmosphere? What is it that does it for you? Um, the voice. 
yeah, like Boy Taylor and M. Shadows that could read out of the telephone book, and I'd go like, oh. <laughs> um, it's very powerful, I think, uh, all of them. You know, it's quite hard, but it's really melodic as well, and uh, they are very good uh, vocalists. Um, and the atmosphere, I mean, I like, I like the whole rock scene in general because it's just not uh, judgmental. You know, you just because you're connected through the music, it doesn't matter uh, who you are or what you do or how you look. And uh, I think that's something I really appreciate about um, the the whole rock scene internationally. You know, it's something that connects you. It doesn't matter which rock bar I walk into, whether it's in London or it's in Warsaw or whatever, somewhere down in Australia. It doesn't matter. I'm already accepted because you know, we are connected in our love uh, for music, so. That's beautiful, that's amazing. So tell me, what is your fire in the belly? What is my fire in the belly? To become the household name for narcissistic abuse recovery um and to change the way we look at um mental health and how how we treat it for for abuse survivors i want that to be my my legacy that that's actually going to be like you know my program to be the um go-to method uh, which obviously not supposed to be exclusively to me, but actually, you know, people get trained in it, people um, apply it in their practice and um, just to change the way we, we treat that kind of uh, trauma and the symptoms that come with it. Well, that's awesome. I don't know. I mean, it's, listen, it's a, it's a, it's a heck of a journey. So tell me, you know, how can people get in touch with you? What's the best place to reach out? Uh, well, my website is ronyafraser.com. Uh, you can send me an email, support at rockandroll.coach. <laughs> and uh, I'm on Facebook, Ronya Fraser page. Uh, I'm on Instagram at rockandrollcoachronny. And uh, yeah, I think. Oh, and if somebody uh, is actually going through this has just come out of an abusive relationship and you know it doesn't quite know where to go from here on my website you can download a free ebook that i wrote uh which is healing from narcissistic abuse your five-step strategy to recover the true you uh which basically lays out a timeline uh so you have a framework uh, to hold on to while you're going through your recovery and it also um, will give you some strategic advice on how to navigate uh, from where you are wherever it is you are on your journey um, to come out the other side so you can download that for free on ronyafraser.com oh wow that's, that's an amazing resource thank you for sharing that and yeah i mean listen i think you know well i know people will hear your journey and, and that's going to give them you know hope and and give them actually answers which is great you know and, and knowing that someone's there to help them so yeah thank you for 
thank you for being you and keep doing it. Thank you. you. So listen, look forward to hearing from you in future again, Ronnie. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on to Fire in the Belly. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without our great guests taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.